Can a pope cancel the Latin Mass, the Roman Rite? I'm with my friend Matt Gaspers. He always does the great research, and he's been looking into this topic of how previous popes, the Council of Trent, understood the relationship between the pope and the liturgy. Not just the Latin Mass, but all the liturgies, all the rites of the church. So real quick, Matt Gaspers, can a pope cancel the Latin Mass? The short answer is no, definite no. All right, there's the and show we'll get right into there. all the details. There's the show right there. <laughs> well, good. Well, Matt, you've got quotes from, I mean, all, all the big voices. Thomas Aquinas, St. Robert Bellarmine, um, Pius the Ninth. I mean, you got some good yep. quotes here. And uh, it's, a, it's a great topic because, I mean, we've been hearing these rumors that Pope Francis is going to restrict the Latin Mass or cancel it yet again yes. in April or May of this year. And this, this is why we're having this conversation. And I think, you know, Pope Francis says, mm -hmm. make a mess, question the authorities, you know, do it. So we're just going to do right. that right now. We're just going to do what yeah. he told what us is to the do. Word? He uses a particular word called, what is it, parasia or something, where speak frankly, speak freely, something like that. There it that. is. That's what I we're forget. doing today. Yep. All right, so yep. so I mean, what is this this question of lex orandi, lex credendi? The law of prayer is the law of belief. I mean, this is an ancient Christian principle. Yes, yes, exactly. That's probably where we should start. So even from apostolic times, liturgical stability has played a vital role in maintaining unity and integrity of faith for the universal church, precisely because, as the church has always taught, lex orandi, lex credendi. The law of prayer is the law of belief. In other words, the church's liturgy, her public worship and prayer, shows forth and gives expression to the deposit of faith. So you can't go tampering with the church's lex orandi to such a degree that it starts to alter the lex credendi, and that's that's what's at stake here. So this is not uh, a fight over somebody's particular preference or something. This is a fight over the faith, because how we pray how we worship affects how we believe. And I know, uh, as you know, the uh, all throughout church history, heretics have sought to change the church's lex orandi in order to accommodate and propagate their heretical lex credendi, for example, during the Arian crisis. Yeah, I mean, St. Basil the Great, I remember him saying, you Arians change the way we pray. An example I believe he uses, we say, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. We still say that today. The Arians said, glory yes. be to the Father through the Son. In other words, they wanted to right. downgrade the way that they adored God with respect to God the Son, Jesus Christ, because the Arians it was taught. their way. Yeah, it yeah. was their way of attacking the that Jesus. Their, their, it was the way of propagating their heresy that uh, Jesus is not consubstantial with the Father, and that's how they expressed it liturgically. Precisely. So liturgy matters. Yeah, and the liturgy Reformation matters. too. Martin Luther, what's yes. the very first thing he did? Change the Mass. John yep. Calvin, same thing. Church of England, same thing. In fact, the Church of England, one of the very first things they did to ruin their the English belief in the real presence of transubstantiation is they started making people receive communion in the hand. And they said that's why they were doing it. So, I mean, when you make exactly. these radical changes to prayers and customs and and even rubrics, it has an effect on the way people out in the pews, I guess there weren't pews back then, people out in the nave understand yes. God. Absolutely. 
So the question that we're going to be addressing today, as you mentioned earlier, does the Pope have the authority to suppress what the Council of Trent calls the received and approved rights of the Catholic Church? So I guess we can start with that uh, quote and the Council of Trent as our kind of our starting point for this discussion. Uh, for those who don't know, the Council of Trent was a very long council. It was drawn out over a couple decades and multiple uh, pontificates. It started on December 13th. 1545 and ended on December 4th, 1563, so about 18 years. And it was convened, as you mentioned earlier, in response to the Protestant revolt, in response to what St. Paul calls profane novelties in his first epistle to St. Timothy. So here's this first quote uh, that I alluded to earlier. This is from session seven of the council, March 3rd, 1547, under Pope Paul III. And it's Canon 13 on the sacraments in general. It reads, quote, if anyone says that the received and approved rites of the Catholic Church that are customarily used in the solemn administration of the sacraments may be despised or omitted without sin by the ministers as they please, or that they, meaning the received and approved rites, may be changed to other new rites by any pastor in the church, let him be anathema. That is the canon. Wow. I mean, a lot of people don't know about this canon because it says the received and approved rights of the church. This means that the rights are not to be recreated, but to be received. Correct. Yeah, that's the key concept. Everybody understands, I think, what approved means, approved mm -hmm. by the authority of the church, especially the Pope. But what does it mean to be received? Well, let's go back to Scripture to help us understand, first of all, St. Paul talks about this in reference to the Mass in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says to the Corinthians, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. And then he goes on to recount uh, the Last Supper and the institution of the Holy Eucharist and the Mass. So he says, I have received of the Lord that which I also deliver unto you. So it's not something that he made up. It's something that he received from outside of himself from the Lord directly in this case uh, and is handing on faithfully. Right. So yeah, it's, it's remarkable that already there's that emphasis in the New Testament with the apostles mm -hmm. that they're receiving something. Now, I think you and I would agree that the liturgy that St. Paul was using is not going to be word for word, rubric for rubric, the 1962 Missal of the Latin Mass. Right, Obvious, we, obviously we, not. And I think a lot of people wrongly believe that traditional Catholics believe that like the the 1962 missile or the, the Tridentine missile just sort of floated from heaven, you know, onto the right. altar of the Pope at St. Peter's. And it's just, it's, it's, uh, you know, immutable, like the Quran or something. That's not at all what we're, right. what we're proposing here. What we're saying is, is no. these rites, this liturgy, the Latin mass, it, it has been received and passed down with minor variations. Right. Right. And over or there, yeah, there, of course, there's been organic development over time slowly. But the 
as we'll talk about in just a moment, the organic development always leads to enhancement, not to mm. reduction and, and minimalism. So the liturgy grows, has grown over the centuries, just like a human being grows and matures to adulthood, to right. full fruition. So, but regarding what is it, what does it mean to be received and approved? Another great quote is from St. Basil the Great. You mentioned him earlier uh, from the fourth century, one of the great champions against Arian, the Arian heresy. He says in his book on the Holy Spirit, uh, of the beliefs and practices, whether generally accepted or publicly enjoined, which are preserved in the church, some we possess derived from written teaching, in other words, scripture, others we have received uh, and delivered to us in a mystery by the tradition of the apostles. And both of these in relation to true religion have the same force. And then he goes on to apply this to the liturgical realm. He says, what writing has taught us to turn to the East at the prayer? In other words, ad orientum for mass, for divine liturgy. Which of the saints has left us in writing the words of the invocation at the displaying of the bread and the of the Eucharist and the cup of blessing? So he's talking about the prayers before and after, during and after the consecration. He goes on to say, for we are not, as is well known, content with what the apostle or the gospel has recorded, but both in preface and conclusion, we add other words as being of great importance to the validity of the ministry. And these we derive from unwritten teaching. So already in you know, wow. mid to late fourth century, there's been a lot of development that's already taken place. And it's not all written down. It's preserved uh, in an unwritten manner through the succession of bishops and the apostles and such. Yeah. It'd be interesting to hear a Protestant handle that quote. Because right. it just doesn't fit, you know, that there's this unwritten right. tradition of liturgy that is binding upon us. And, I, you know, a great example of this would be the placement of the Our Father. In every right. single liturgy on earth, you can go to the Egyptian Coptic church, you can go to the Syrian church, you can go to the Byzantine, the Russians, the Mozaribic, right, the Sarum right, the Roman Rite, yeah. everywhere, the Our Father is always recited after the consecration and before receiving communion. It's everywhere. Yeah. That is a testimony that the 12 apostles did it that way. Right. Even the Liber, Pontific, uh, uh, Liber Pontificalis, it states that Peter stipulated that the Our Father was to be recited in the Mass. Right. So this this and is just a, this is just a great example. I want everyone watching right now. Okay, so if that's the case, mm -hmm. every liturgy on earth has this detail. We we know from tradition that Peter insisted on it. Could a pope could Pope Francis just say, you know what? We used to say the Our Father after the consecration and before communion, but you know what? From now on, we're not going to do that. Does he have the power, the supremacy to override every single liturgical patrimony 2,000 years, does he have that power? And I think that's, that's really the debate right now. And if he did do that, would we be obligated to obey him on that detail? Is, isn't that the discussion we're having today? I would say yes, for sure. 
and we're going to, so our next quotes from the Council of Trent, we're going to start getting into, you know, what, what authority and power does the church and the Pope have over the liturgical rites? Because they aren't, as you said, all of divine law and, you know, dictated from God like they were in the Old Testament. The church does, Christ did give authority to his church to make, you know, slight uh, modifications here and there, but not radical changes to the received and approved right, you know, that's been handed on for centuries. So uh, the Council of Trent addressed these kinds of questions in session 21 and 22. So session 21 was July 16th, 1562 under a new Pope, uh, Paul, Pius IV. And this quote I'm going to read to you is sometimes cited by hyper-papalist critics of our position who say, ah, see, this proves that the Pope has basically unilateral, unlimited authority over, uh, over the sacramental rites. And we're going to see how that's not correct. So this is what uh, the decree on communion under both species and the communion of young children. That's the context of this quote. It says, furthermore, the Holy Council declares that in the administration of the sacraments, provided their substance is preserved, there has always been in the church that power to determine or modify what she judged more expedient for the benefit of those receiving the sacraments or for the reverence due to the sacraments themselves, according to the diversity of circumstances, times, and places. So a couple things we need to recognize in this quote. First of all, as I said, the context of this statement is an explanation of why communion under the species of bread alone, in other words, receiving the host alone, is sufficient to receive the whole Christ, which had been a custom of the Roman church for many centuries by the time of the Council of Trent, but was being attacked as illegitimate by the Protestant heretics who claimed you need to receive under both species or you're not fully receiving Jesus. The context has nothing to do whatsoever with making radical changes to the mass itself. In fact, the Council of Trent was very uh, concerned with preserving the received and approved rite of mass precisely to counteract the Protestant heresy. So that's critical context for that quote. Right, So, and, and it's not changing the text of the mass it's just the right. mode of communion exactly yeah exactly and then this other quote uh that is sometimes brought up in this context of this discussion this debate is from session 22 september 17th 1562 this was also under Pius the fourth and this is from the decree on the holy sacrifice of the mass it says and as human nature is such that it cannot easily raise itself up to the meditation of divine realities without external aids, Holy Mother Church has, for that reason, duly established certain rites, such as that some parts of the Mass should be said in quieter tones and others in louder, and she has provided ceremonials such as mystical blessings, lights, incense, vestments, and many other rituals of that kind, from apostolic order and tradition, that's very important, by which the majesty of this great sacrifice is enhanced and the minds of the faithful are aroused by those visible signs of religious devotion to contemplation of the high mysteries hidden in this sacrifice. So yes, the church does have authority to establish certain rites, as the council said, 
she's not it's not really talking about the right of mass as a whole it's talking about particular components of the mass itself you know mystical blessings lights incense vestments etc from apostolic order and tradition which all of which are designed to enhance enhance the liturgy not to reduce it to this you know basic matter and form and then you can do whatever else you want that's right. not what the council is saying yeah it's definitely as i said the- earlier i was just going to say organic just to drive this point home again, organic liturgical development always results in enhancement or growth over time, not reduction and minimalism. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely goes against this idea, well, the liturgy is valid, therefore all good. Because right. well, it, I love in the, these quotes, uh, they're uh, saying that the good. that it's not... the. the the purpose of the sacraments of Jesus Christ is to confer grace to those belonging to the new covenant church, the Catholic church. That's the purpose of the sacraments. But the sacrament, I mean, if it were just that, then there would be no rituals. It would just be like, here's a baby. Right. I baptize the name of Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, hand the baby back, and it's over. But that's not how the right. Catholic church baptizes. We have a whole rite of baptism. Same with confirmations. Mm-hmm. I mean, same with extreme unction. So the right. idea here is, is that the rites that enshrine the sacraments and lift up the sacraments are important catechetical events that also confer graces. For example, exorcisms in the baptism, mm-hmm. the kyrie, the ninefold yeah, kyrie in the mass. So t- t- for someone in, you know, in our time, you're like, well, it's valid, so who cares? No, that's not the Catholic understanding of sacraments. Exactly. And the council makes that very clear in the quote I just read. It says, the purpose of all of these rites and rituals and ceremonies is to enhance the great sacrifice and help the faithful arouse them by those visible signs of religious devotion to contemplation of the high mysteries hidden in this sacrifice. I don't know about wow. you, Taylor, wow. but I'm not really helped. I'm not helped to contemplate the high mysteries of the sacrifice of the mass by listening to uh, on Eagle's wings. That doesn't help me. Right. <laughs> Or, you know, another example that everyone's experienced is the prayers of the faithful in the Novus Ordo. That's a universal custom in the Novus Ordo. And and though historically, the prayers that we pray corporately as a people of God, I just said that that word, and I mean it by the biblical way, not the Novus Ordo way. Right. Those were carefully crafted by saints and popes. Not mm-hmm. by Rita on the parish council on a Saturday night for Sunday morning. Exactly. You know, like, oh, and exactly. we pray for the end of the death penalty and for immigration and, yep. you know, whatever else they're going to throw into it. That is liturgical corporate prayer in the context of the sacrifice of the mass. And it shouldn't just be, you know, made up by Sister Rita or Karen on the it shouldn't be pushing right. It shouldn't be pushing Democratic Party talking points, basically, which it, is what it, it often does. It shouldn't be pushing Republic. It, it should be prayers ratified by the saints over centuries. That's the way that right. we should pray. And then the other idea right. that you know, you know, Father McGillicuddy can say, well, we're going to do penitential right B and Eucharistic prayer two mm-hmm. and. 
Memorial Acclamation C. And I mean, the whole thing's like a Rubrics cube, you know, that he's just twisting around. <laughs> this is not Rubrics cube. This is not how Christians, Eastern or Western, understood liturgy for 2,000 years. It's certainly not how That's they understand right. liturgy in the Old Testament with the Levites. Exactly right. So now what we're going to see after we've seen what the Council of Trent taught, so what was the what were the Pope's understanding of these teachings? And I think we have a very clear indication of that in a couple of quotes. Wait, I'm are you read saying now. that popes other than Francis have a say in this? <laughs> no, yes, aren't we Francis definitely. alone? Isn't that isn't that the new new way? <laughs> We just listen to Francis, or do other popes, do they get a say on these things? I'm sure there are some people who are Francis alone. I think we right. know who they are, but yeah. yes, we definitely need to be listening to the magisterium of all time and not just the, the magisterium of the current, pont, uh, the current pontiff. Yes. So we'll start with this quote from Pope Pius IV, who you'll recall is the same pope who presided over sessions 21 and 22 of Trent. So he was there, he approved of those uh, quotes that I just read you from the council. And this is a quote from his Tridentine Profession of Faith, which was issued on November 13th, 1564, after the close of the Council of Trent, almost, roughly a year after. And it's, it's quite long. I'm just gonna provide a couple of excerpts that are relevant to our discussion. He said, said in that profession, I most firmly accept and embrace the apostolic and ecclesiastical traditions and all other observances and constitutions of the same Catholic Church. I also profess that there are truly and properly speaking seven sacraments of the new law, instituted by Jesus Christ our Lord, and necessary for the salvation of the human race. I also admit and accept, Pius IV said, the rites received and approved in the Catholic Church for the solemn administration of all the sacraments mentioned above. End quote. Wow. So he basically quoted that canon I read earlier. Yeah. Sorry, I had to put in the DJ horn on that. That's just like yep. a mic. That's a mic drop right there by Pius the Fourth. And and yep. what percent of Jesuits now would agree with that statement? I think we'd be shocked and maybe, saddened to know maybe the Father to that. Mitch Pacwa, and that's it. I mean, like, who else? Who else do we have here? Yep, it's it's very sad. I mean, he says, and, "I admit and accept the rights received and approved by the Catholic Church for the solemn administration of all the sacraments mentioned above." Yep, and and he he, and he, he even, tags on apostolic and ecclesiastical traditions. That's right. And other observances and constitutions. That's a reference to, to papal and conciliar documents of the same Catholic Church. Right. So clearly this pope is recognizing, I am not an absolute monarch, to quote Benedict XVI and Cardinal Ratzinger, whose will is just magically the law. I am bound by things that are above me and over which I don't have authority to change. Wow. And... So the Pope and is pope, under tradition. The Pope is under tradition. Yes. yes. Very this much is the so. traditional Very argument so. here. The Pope is the guardian of tradition. He's the servant of tradition. He cannot create new traditions. He cannot create new books of the Bible. He cannot create anything. Right. He receives 
the apostolic deposit given by Jesus Christ to the apostles, and he preserves it over time. Yep. Right. That doesn't mean he can't make, you know, within certain, I'm going to back up a little bit and read. Uh, this is concern, specifically concerning the Roman canon during session 22 of the Council of Trent. It says, because this goes into the distinctions between scripture, tradition with a capital T, and then other lesser traditions that are, you know, not of divine institution, but of ecclesiastical tradition. So it says, holy things must be treated in a holy way. And this sacrifice, meaning the mass, is the most holy of all things. This is the Council of Trent, session 22. And so that this sacrifice might be worthily and reverently offered and received, the Catholic Church many centuries ago instituted the sacred canon, meaning the canon of the mass, the Roman wow. canon, which in the Novus Ordo is optional. It goes on to say, this it, meaning the canon, is so free from all error that it contains nothing that does not savor strongly of holiness and piety, and nothing that does not raise to God the minds of those who offer it. For it is made up of the words of our Lord himself from scripture, of apostolic traditions, which would be tradition with a capital T, uh, the other source of divine revelation, and the canon is made up of devout instructions of the holy pontiffs, which is ecclesiastical traditions. Um, so, wow. and, and as we know, you know, the, the canon was not really finalized until around the time of St. Gregory the Great, which is, you know, the what the late 500s going into the early 600s. Uh, so it's not like the popes have never added anything to the mass, but they've done so very carefully and with great uh, fear and trembling. And then there did come a point very early on uh, in relative, in the grand scheme of church history when popes stopped messing with the Roman canon and just left it alone. And that was the well, case. For no, was Gregory the Great was the last one to make a change to the Roman canon. <laughs> exactly. Until and, and, John and, the 23rd in the 60s. Exactly. And yeah. the the Roman canon itself was 90-something percent codified uh, in the time of Pope Damasus, which is late mm -hmm. 300s. And we have right. evidence from the writing of St. Ambrose also testifying to the Roman canon. So this is why people, a lot of our Eastern friends get upset. They're like, we have the oldest, we have the oldest. Well, actually, when you talk to liturgical scholars, the Roman canon is the oldest that we have in use mm -hmm. right now. Yep. And so it's a shame that in Vatic, after Vatican II, they said, well, it's going to be Eucharistic prayer one. And then if you're right. in a hurry on a daily mass, we're going to first put in, among equals. Yeah. We're going to put in Eucharistic prayer two, And then we got three and four. I mean, it, it's, it's offensive. It's offensive mm -hmm. that the Roman canon, which is the core of the Roman rite, was made an option, like on a, on a supersized menu. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, 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 and not and only that, also, but you can, you can omit the saints names from the Roman canon in the Novus Ordo. What, what is this nonsense? Right. Right. And I think it's also an important point that, you know, the fact that the popes from St. Gregory the Great all the way through Pius the Twelfth did not dare touch the Roman canon is proof that those popes understood that it's not something that they should be doing or else they, there was no need to be messing with the canon. 
Well, uh, and remember John, John the twenty third. He put the word Joseph in the Roman canon, and that was controversial. Right, and that was the that was the little crack that opened the 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 floodgates, you know, to completely change everything within. Uh, within less than a decade of him doing that, we had the Novus Ordo. But back to um, this whole notion of, you know, the Pope himself recognizes he is subject to to and responsible for handing on intact the received and approved rights of the church. Uh, the other quote I want to share with you is from Pope Pius IX in his profession of faith, January 6th, 1870, at the beginning of Vatican I, because this is the Pope who defined papal primacy and infallibility so people often are the hyper papalists often point to him as saying well look uh, you know he has supreme he defined the pope as supreme jurisdiction and everything so obviously he can change whatever he wants right no wrong very wrong this is what Pius the ninth said january 6th 1870 He's basically quoting from the Tridentine Profession of Faith of Pius IV, as you'll hear. Apostolic and ecclesiastical traditions and all other observances and constitutions of that same Catholic Church I most firmly accept and embrace. I profess also that there are seven sacraments of the new law, truly and properly so called, instituted by our Lord Jesus Christ and necessary for salvation. And here he says what Pius IV did. I likewise receive and accept the rights of the Catholic Church, which have been received and approved in the solemn administration of all the aforesaid sacraments. So again, you note this very well, wow. everyone listening. The same pontiff who defined papal infallibility and reaffirmed, quote, the full and supreme power of jurisdiction over the whole church in Pastor Eternus, uh, not only in matters that pertain to faith and morals, but also those that pertain to the discipline and government of the church, the same Pope who did that also clearly recognized, as I just read to you, that he himself was bound to, quote, firmly accept and embrace not only apostolic and ecclesiastical traditions, including the rights of the Catholic, the received and approved rights of the church, but also all other observances and constitutions of the church. Wow. So the very Pope who defined papal primacy and infallibility is recognizing I'm not an absolute monarch whose will is the law. I am underneath these other things. Right. It's interesting, you know, when he says, I likewise receive and accept the rights of the Catholic Church, which have been received and approved in the solemn administration of all the aforesaid sacraments. Paul VI would not be able to say that. Or John Paul II, John right. Paul I, John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and Francis. They would not be able to recite these words because they are not receiving what was formally received by Pius the Ninth, it's different. I mean, are, are we crazy here, Matt? Are, I mean, am I, am I taking crazy pills? I have to say this all the time, like, <laughs> am I just so well, some people, ignorant? Am I, am I just, I don't have the Jesuit education to see how <laughs> what Francis is saying and doing is in complete contradiction with Pius the Ninth. Will somebody please and I also accompany wanna, me with some amorous love? Yes. Because I don't, I don't see how this fits. Maybe I'm just a total yep. idiot, Matt. 
Well, maybe James Martin can come on the show and and uh, straighten us out. Slim no Jim, intended, of course. Slim Jim, come help me. <laughs> help me. Yep. Slim Jim, you're my only hope. <laughs> so something else I want to bring to people's attention. Notice that I haven't brought up St. Pius V's Quo Primum once during this show. Why far, not? Because that's another tr- that's another trope that's brought against us trads. Is all, all you yeah. have on this is you just invoke, well, Quo Primum says the Pope can never change it. Right. Um, that's what I like. Yeah. Mel Gibson uses so, that. Mel Gibson says Quo Primum. Drop the mic. Right. And I think there is some truth to that, but not necessarily in a legislative sense. Let me explain what I mean. Um, so St. Pius V in Quo Primum does allude to the importance of maintaining what Trent called the received and approved rites when he says in his document uh, that the Tridentine Liturgical Commission, quote, restored the missal itself, meaning the Roman missal, to the original form and rite of the Holy Fathers. That's the claim that St. Pius the Ten or St. Pius V rather is making in Quo Primum. The reason why this is legitimate, what I'm doing. It is, is that it's truly restoring the missile itself to the original form and right of the Holy Fathers. And in the words of a liturgical scholar, a highly renowned liturgical scholar, Father Adrian Fortescue, who died in 1923, this is what he says about Quo Primum and the liturgical commission. They, meaning the, the Tridentine Liturgical Commission, accomplished their task very well. It was not to make a new missile. That's critical. It was not to make a new missile, but to restore the existing one according to the custom and right of the Holy Fathers. As St. Pius V said in Quo Primum, Father Fortescue says, using for that purpose the best manuscript, manuscripts and other documents, end quote. So there's no, there was no need at Vatican II to try and go back and do the same thing that had already been accomplished after the Council of Trent using the best manuscripts and other documents from the Vatican Library. Right. And in, in the 1500s, what they were discussing is, is, okay, well, you know, for the collect for, I don't know, second Sunday of Advent, I'm making this up, by the way, I'm just keep trying to make it. Right. For the, for the collect for the second Sunday of Advent, certain sacrament, sacramental missiles have this prayer or in this one it has this. Which is the best? Which is the oldest? Let's just standardize some of these things that are discrepancies that we noticed, you know, in different regions or in different examples of what right. we have in the books. That's that's what happened during after Trent is just standardizing exactly. some of these things. It wasn't like maybe we should write Eucharistic prayer too, or exactly. the Kyrie, exactly. which is ninefold, three Kyries and then a three Christes and then a three Kyries. Maybe we should make that six instead of nine. That, that was never what they were trying to do because there was no ancient evidence no. for that. No. No, what we need to understand about Quo Primum and this, this claim, this truth of St. Pius V, is that the missile that he gave us, the restored and codified Roman missile, is what he said, the original form and rite of the Holy Fathers. It is the traditional Roman liturgy, period, right. full stop. The, the the Novus Ordo is not that. That's what it claims. They claimed to be, you know, Paul VI and Missali Romanum 1969 talked about, we want to bring forth the riches of certain Eastern customs or something like that. Right. Which is not Roman. Your predecessor already took, <laughs> right. Your predecessor already took care of restoring and codifying the Rome, the traditional Roman liturgy. Leave it alone. Leave yeah. it alone. 
We need it. We need a. We need a coffee mug. It says Latin Mass. Leave it alone. <laughs> there you or, go. Or can't touch this. That can't. <laughs> do y'all, do y'all out there want that? That's do we need? Do we need to get That's one of those? Perfect. Yeah. That's don't, perfect. Don't touch this. In Texas, we have don't so mess the with la- Texas. That's right. That's right. That's a good one too. So the last papal document that I think we should look at, at least briefly, is uh, Pope Pius Twelfth, more recently, 1947, issued a magnificent encyclical on the sacred liturgy, Mediator Dei. And I know, I've noticed recently that this certain uh, hyper-papalist apologist will proof text little snippets from this document and say, see, I told you the Pope can do whatever he wants with the liturgy. So we need to look at the larger context of what's going on with this encyclical. Um, First of all, context of this document is critical. Pius XII wrote Mediator Dei to affirm all that was good in the liturgical movement, which began in the late 1800s and went into the early 1900s which started out very good, but he also condemned various modernist errors and tendencies which crept in to the liturgical movement and ultimately ended up hijacking the whole thing and taking it over by the time he was writing this document. It was like the pre- it became in many ways the precursor to the liturgical revolution uh, of the 1960s. So here's what Pius XII says in Mediator Dei. We'll start with with his uh, talking about the Pope can make some, the church and the Pope can make some modifications occasionally. He says, from time immemorial, the ecclesiastical hierarchy has exercised this right of defining doctrine in matters liturgical. It has organized and regulated divine worship, enriching it constantly with new splendor and beauty. Again, we see the enhancement. That's the role of organic liturgical development is enhancement, enriching it to the glory of God and the spiritual profit of Christians. What is more, it has not been slow keeping the substance of the mass and sacraments carefully intact, as Trent taught, to modify what it deemed not altogether fitting and to add what appeared more likely to increase the honor paid to Jesus Christ and the August Trinity. So note in this quote, this is paragraph 49, Mediator Dei, He did not say that the ecclesiastical hierarchy has the right to abolish the received and approved rights of the Catholic Church. That's not what he wrote. That's not what he said. That's not what he believed, clearly, from this quote. Uh, He goes on in the next paragraph. He says, the sacred liturgy does, in fact, include divine as well as human elements. The former, instituted as they have been by God, cannot be changed in any way by men. But the human components admit of various modifications, as the needs of the age, circumstance, and the good of souls may require, and as the ecclesiastical hierarchy under guidance of the Holy Spirit may have authorized. So I think the example we talked about earlier with, you know, reducing communion to only the species of bread in order to protect the sacred, the liquid, liquid sacred species from being desecrated, that kind of thing. And also to teach the truth that you don't need to receive the host and from the chalice in order to receive the whole Christ. That's what he's talking about here. Um, he goes on to say, this is very a very important quote that uh, the hyper-papalists would do well to listen to. Mediator Dei 57 says, the church has further used her right of control over liturgical observance 
to protect the purity of divine worship against abuse from dangerous and imprudent innovations. That's the key word. Liturgical innovation has always gone with heresy, as we said earlier in the show. Yeah. Yeah. And and if I could just interrupt here, Matt, if I could just interrupt, I'm hearing over and over from these popes the idea of receiving what went before. I can't imagine that Pius the Ninth or Pius the Tenth or Pius the Fifth or Fourth, any of the Piuses we're talking about here, that they would right. ever imagine that a Pope would just abrogate, cancel what they're talking about in all these statements. I mean, can you imagine going to Pius the Fifth and saying, hey, uh, one day there's going to be a Pope, he's just going to cancel all the, the seven... Uh, liturgies that you use for the seven sacraments, those will one day be banned. Like, how is that even possible? Right. It's a fair question. I mean, I'm sure he would think that somebody who told him that is insane and that that's not possible. Right. But here we are. But people are telling telling us that we're insane. Right. Right. And by the way, Matt is not just making up stuff here. I mean, Matt is hammering the quotes. Show me one pope who says, and I, the pope, can delete all seven liturgies for the seven sacraments and reboot. Doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. The quote doesn't exist because the papal, there is no such authority. So here's one uh, hyper-papalist proof text, as I'll call it, from Mediator Dei that, that the, the hyper-papalists will point to to say, aha, I, I sold you so. So this is from paragraph 58 in Mediator Dei. It follows from this that the sovereign pontiff alone enjoys the right to recognize and establish any practice touching the worship of God, to introduce and approve new rites, as also to modify those he judges to require modification. But again, understand, Pius XII did not say that the ecclesiastical hierarchy or even the Pope himself has the right to abolish the received and approved rites of the Catholic Church. He said that the sovereign pontiff alone enjoys the right to recognize and establish any practice touching the worship of God, to guard and preserve what he's received, to introduce and approve new rites, which doesn't necessarily mean an entirely new liturgical rite for the whole mass. In the Council of Trent, that word rite referred to things like mystical blessings, candles, incense, lesser things, not the rite as a whole. Yeah. And he said also to modify those he judges to require modification. He is not saying, I have a wholesale right to get rid of the traditional Latin mass. That's simply not what he's saying at all. Um, And he goes on in the very next paragraph, actually, he says, the church is without question a living organism. She grows, matures, develops, adapts, and accommodates herself to temporal needs and circumstances provided only that the integrity of her doctrine be safeguarded. And as we know from the Ottaviani intervention, the brief critical study of the mass, of the new mass rather, that's precisely what's at stake here is the integrity of her doctrine in the new liturgical rites. It doesn't mean that they're arguing they're invalid, but I'll get to a quote from the Ottaviani. I think I have one here. 
Um, so for those who aren't familiar, you, I know you've talked about it many times on your show, but um, it's called the Brief Critical Study, which was endorsed by Cardinals Ottaviani and Bocci after uh, Paul VI issued Missali Romanum in April of 1969. They organized with this, the, this small group of Roman theologians got organized. They reached out to some cardinals. Ottaviani and Bocci signed on to it. And according to those cardinals, uh, the study, the Novus Ordo, this, these are their words from their cover letter to the study. The Novus Ordo represents both as a whole and in its details, a striking departure from the Catholic theology of the mass as it was formulated in session 22 of the Council of Trent. That's from their cover letter. The brief critical study likewise concludes in its pages, quote, it is evident that the Novus Ordo has no intention of presenting the faith as taught by the Council of Trent, to which nonetheless the Catholic conscience is bound forever. With the promulgation of the new mass, these Roman theologians say, the loyal Catholic is thus faced with a most tragic alternative. That's very serious. Yes. Very serious. Um. So what does that leave there, us now? Let's take a let's ahead. take a pause. Yeah. Where does that leave us? I mean, some would say, okay, well, you're just uh, this conclusion. If we take all of this consistently, is you got to set of a contest. There's been no real pope could delete, reset, and cancel the Roman right. How? But then we're left well, with think- this this interregnum from 1958 till now. And how do you understand the apostolic and juridical nature of the church from 1958 till now? How does that work? So there has to be some way of understanding what has happened and how we go back. And I, and the second thing is, for all the people watching right now who are committed to the traditional Latin Mass, if Francis hits the delete button in April or May, then what? Mm-hmm. You got any good answers on on those two topics? I have one one thing that comes to mind, which I know okay. you've discussed this quote recently, is it's very important to understand um, that as Benedict XVI finally acknowledged in the year 2007, that the 1962 missile, in his words, quote, was never juridically abrogated and consequently in principle was always permitted. So even if it even if it was Paul VI will that all of us get on board with the Novus Ordo and leave the traditional mass behind, he technically never abrogated it. That's simply a historical fact. Which is awesome. Which means if you yes. were a priest in 1974 and you're like, I don't want to do the Novus Ordo, I'm using the old one. Technically he was right. The old mass was not abrogated. Correct. And, and it wasn't because it can't be. I mean, that's the point. And that's the point that Benedict made in his, I'm re- that quote I just read is from his letter to bishops in reference to Samorum Pontificum, the attachment to it, you might say. He goes on in that same letter, what earlier generations held as sacred remains sacred and great for us too. And it cannot be all of a sudden entirely forbidden or even considered harmful. It behooves all of us to preserve the riches which have developed in the church's faith and prayer and to give them their proper place. That is the traditional Catholic understanding of liturgy right there. Right. And that might be one of the most important legacies of Pope Benedict XVI 
to say what earlier generations yeah. held as sacred remains sacred and great for us too. And it cannot be right. all of a sudden entirely forbidden or even considered harmful. And there's, there's apologists out there who say that the traditional Latin mass that is harmful, it's considered harmful, it's bad, it's leading people into schism. It's, right. and, it's and being it's not, weaponized. It's being blah, weaponized. Blah, blah, blah. And Benedict says no. It cannot be considered harmful, and it behooves all of us to preserve the riches which have developed in the church's faith and prayer. Mm -hmm. That right there might be the most important legacy of Pope Benedict XVI, because if Francis does try to cancel and delete the traditional Latin Mass, all we have to do is show that quote. And yep. it was never abrogated. You know, Francis has, I don't have the quote right now, but Francis, in, you know, after Traditions Custodius, talks about there being only one, he gets rid of the ordinary, extraordinary form distinction of Benedict XVI. There can only be one right. form of the Roman Rite. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to delete the ancient traditional yep. liturgies of the seven sacraments. And I oh, and you are going to say no. Right. We're not going to do it. And there's going and to be dozens, hundreds, thousands of priests and bishops who say, no, we're going to stick it out here and here's with Benedict yes. XVI. Exactly. And exactly. Pius, and here's and why Pius the ninth right. and Pius the fourth, as your quotes have shown us. Yes. And here's why we're going to say no to Francis, because he made very clear in his recent, you know, his apostolic letter from last, forget when that was released last, um, June, I guess it was, June 29th, 2022, Desiderio Desideravi on the liturgical formation of the people of God, which is basically like kind of trying to sell the Novus Ordo to, to today's Catholics and convince them that the, the old liturgy, you don't need to retain it. It's kind of the gist of the letter. But he says in paragraph 31 of that document concerning this, what he calls these tensions around the traditional mass, Quote, it would be trivial to read the tensions unfortunately present around the celebration as a simple divergence between different tastes concerning a particular ritual form. The problematic, Francis says, is primarily ecclesiological. That is huge because what he is saying is that the tensions which exist between Catholics who embrace the liturgical form and those who resist it are based not on what he calls different tastes, but on divergent ecclesiologies. That is on fundamentally different doctrinal positions about the church's very nature. So what, when he's trying to get rid of the traditional mass, what he's really trying to do is get rid of the church's traditional ecclesiology. That's what we have to understand. And Which that's is, what the new what, and what does Francis is. call it? What does he call it? The new ecclesiology. What's the what's the buzzword? The people of God. Well, now he says specifically more. synodality. Oh, syn yes, synodality. That's, exactly. That's the new ecclesiology is synodality. That we're going to get away from the yep. past and we're going to get into synodality. Yep. So that's what folks have to understand. There's a lot at stake here at the theological doctrinal level. It's not just a matter of preference. These Francis and his allies 
The reason why they hate the traditional mass is that they hate the traditional understanding of the church. Right. That's why they hate it. Yes. Because, because it doesn't go with the new. Yeah. Yeah. Because it doesn't go with the new ecclesiology and preserves the tradition of the church. And you can't yes. have sodomy and same sex blessings and abortion is not always that bad if you just follow your conscience and contraception and all this nonsense, women's ordination. You can't have all that in the old, real Catholic church. So you have to recreate right. and ape it with something new. Now, you have a couple quotes here. We're com coming up on an hour here, but I, w I want you yeah. to touch on them. We, there's a quote from Thomas Aquinas and a quote from St. Robert Bellarmine. Can we, yes. can we camp on those a little bit? Because those are powerful. Definitely. So yeah, this now we're going to try and transition into what should our response be as Catholics if the Pope tries to cancel the traditional Latin Mass, even though objectively speaking, he, the papal, he doesn't have the authority to do that. But what if he tries to do that? Okay. Um, first, we'll go with St. Thomas Aquinas about fraternal correction. This is in the part of the Summa that deals with fraternal correction. And St. Thomas says, if the faith were endangered, and indeed it is with these radical changes and trying to get rid of the received and approved Roman rite, if the faith were endangered, a subject ought to rebuke his prelate even publicly. Hence Paul, who was Peter's subject, rebuked him in public on account of the imminent danger of scandal concerning faith. And as the gloss of Augustine says on Galatians 2.11, this is Augustine speaking, Peter gave an example to superiors that if at any time they should happen to stray from the straight path, they should not disdain to be reproved by their subjects, end quote. So that's Thomas Aquinas in the Summa. Yes, and uh, people are going to say, well, you know, you, you can rebuke your prelate publicly, but I mean, that's just like your bishop. No, the example that Thomas uses is Paul rebuking Peter. Peter was the Pope. Mm -hmm. So the quote yep. here, Thomas Aquinas is not just talking about rebuking your priest, your pastor, a deacon, your local bishop. The example he gives is rebuking Peter, the Pope. That's right. That's right. And the other quote that we have in this regard of legitimate resistance of tyranny or heresy is from St. Robert Bellarmine, the great doctor of the church, uh, who was, I think, present at least for some of, well, I guess he was too young to be at the Council of Trent itself, but he did a lot of work after the council uh, combating the Protestant heretics and such. So this is what he wrote in his work on the Roman Pontiff, Book 2, Chapter 29. Just as it would be lawful to resist a pontiff in invading a body, so in other words, threatening physical harm, so it is lawful to resist him invading souls or disturbing a state, and much more if he should endeavor to destroy the church. And I would say that trying to destroy the Roman rite of the traditional Roman rite is an attack on the church herself, definitely. So Robert Bellarmine goes on to say, I say it is lawful to resist him by not doing what he commands and by blocking him, lest he should carry out his will. Still, Bellarmine says, it is not lawful to judge or punish or even depose him because he is nothing other than a superior. 
So this wow. is really where we get the idea of recognizing the Pope is the Pope while also resisting illegitimate commands and decrees, et cetera. Yes. And a lot of the, a lot of traditionalists in the set of a contest world are constantly criticizing us and saying, recognize, resist is heresy, recognize and re no recognize and resist is right there in St. Robert Bellarmine. If you actually take time to read the doctor of the church, Robert Bellarmine, he says mm -hmm. it is lawful to resist him if he's invading souls or disturbing a state much more so if he should endeavor to destroy the church. This actually holds out the possibility that a pope could do things that would actively destroy the church. And it doesn't take a genius to realize that Francis has not been constructive, but destructive over these past yes. many years. And that's just talking about the liturgy, yes. not to mention a bunch of other stuff. Exactly. So I know we're getting close, as you said, to the hour mark. One book that I did want to definitely promote from our friend and colleague, Dr. Peter Kwasniewski, which I really think everybody needs to get a copy and get a copy for your priest, is this book, very small, very easy to read, called True Obedience in the Church, which lays out in very systematically, methodically, and also Peter's just an excellent writer. It's a very good read. It was actually a lecture that he gave at the 2021 Catholic Identity Conference, then he turned it into this small booklet. Um, so let me just read a couple of quotes, if I could, from this that to help people understand how important this work is. So he says, since the liturgy truly is the font and apex of the Christian life, the home of divine revelation, and the primary agent of our transformation in Christ, Kwasniewski says, um, it follows that to abolish or prohibit or in any way work against the venerable Roman rite that was humbly received, gratefully loved, and lavishly praised for century after century of uninterrupted growth is the most notorious and damaging attack on the common good possible or imaginable. If this, he says, is not the kind of good the church's authority exists to protect, one may well ask what goods would qualify. And he ultimately says, Catholic tradition recognizes the Pope's solemn duty toward the immemorial liturgical practice of the church. That's one of the quotes. Wow. Very good stuff. Very solid. Yes. And then elsewhere in this same book, he says, uh, the post-conciliar liturgical reform, and this, this quote, by the way, got a standing ovation. I was there when he gave the original lecture, and this got a standing ovation. You'll see why. The post-conciliar liturgical reform, its subsequent ruthless implementation, and Pope Francis's renewed efforts to ex uh, extinguish the preceding tradition are unreasonable, unjust, and unholy and therefore cannot be accepted as legitimate or embraced as the will of God. As St. Thomas Aquinas famously says, unjust laws are acts of violence rather than laws, wherefore they do not bind in conscience. He's quoting the Summa there. And ultimately he ends this section by saying, a repudiation of our Catholic liturgical patrimony is tantamount to disobedience to God and we will be obedient to God through our so-called disobedience to the revolutionaries, end quote. Wow. Solid. Good job, Dr. Yes. K. And the other book we'll just mention, we don't have time to go into it in detail, but 
This is what this is Dr. K's magnum yep. opus. I have it right over there. Released. Yep. Released uh, last October. It's called the Once and Future Roman Rite. I'm currently reading it. it is outstanding. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's more substantial in length than the other one, but it's well worth your time to get a copy and and read it because it goes over all the principles that we've been talking about today in in greater detail. Uh, Dr. Kwasniewski is a very gifted teacher and writer, so it's well worth your time to to get a copy. Yep. Awesome. Well, great. Well, I'd encourage everyone to like this video, share it, and then, of course, subscribe because we are going to be discussing this more. It's going to ramp up. So if you want to stay informed, subscribe here at the Dr. Taylor Marshall Podcast. Also, you can subscribe over at the catholic family news they have their podcast you can go to catholicfamilynews.com you can see it on the screen and uh, that's the name of the podcast too right yeah our cha- the channel on youtube and rumble is just catholic family news the same yeah. as our our apostolate our uh, monthly publication so folks can visit us at catholicfamilynews.com if they're interested in subscribing to our monthly paper they can do that on our website just click the new subscription tab and also uh, visit our YouTube channel, Catholic Family News. We're inching up closer to, to 10,000 subscribers. I'd love to see, uh, see right. us reach that Let's push them over the benchmark. line, everybody. Let's push them over the yep. line. Good. All right. Well, let's, um, let's end with the, uh, we'll pray the Hail Mary in Latin. Sound good to you? Sounds great. All right. Oremus nomine patris et fidi, spiritus sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum. Benedicta tu in molieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in hora mortis nostre. Amen. Amen. St. Pius V. Pray for us. St. Pius X. Pray for us. St. Gregory the Great. Pray for us. Nomine Patris et Fidi et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Amen. Well, Matt Gaspers, uh, thanks for the amazing quotes. Thank you for this education on this important topic. I think it shows us uh, a perspective, not a new perspective, an old perspective on the relationship between the papacy and liturgy, rites, tradition, custom, how important that is. And uh, I'd encourage everybody to pray your rosary every single day if you're not on the team. And if you're not already, Go online, find a traditional Latin mass, go this Sunday and start. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a little bit maybe disorienting or confusing. That's okay. It's okay. You got plenty of time. Right. You know, keep, keep trying at it. It takes a little bit. And I have a whole online course um, on YouTube on basically how to situate yourself and get accustomed to the traditional Latin mass. So if you're on YouTube, you know, just Google Taylor Marshall Latin Mass. I also have a whole course on the history of the Roman Rite over at the New St. Thomas Institute at newstthomas.com. You can sign up and go even deeper if you really want to get into which popes developed the Latin Mass over time. Um, so check that out over at uh, newstthomas.com. Matt Gaspers, thanks a million for being on today. And uh, let's do it again. Yes, it's always a pleasure. I love our discussions. Good Likewise. to see you. Likewise. All right. Remember, everyone, our Lord Jesus Christ is the light of the world and the salt of the earth. So go out there and be salty. God bless and Godspeed.